Amen. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, worship team. My name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the, the elders and pastors here at River Oaks. It's my privilege to get to open God's word with you this morning. So let's open to Luke chapter 3. We've been worshiping our way through Luke's orderly account of the life of Jesus, and we've come to, to chapter 3. <laughs> Years ago on, a, on my commute to work, uh, every day I would, I, I would drive the same commute and I would pass by a sign on the side of the road that just had two words on it, Jesus saves. And it was encouraging to get a, a daily reminder of that truth, but as I passed by that sign day after day, I started to think, what would someone think about that sign if they had no clue who Jesus was? If they just had zero knowledge of the Christian faith? And I think some, some questions would immediately come up. Okay, Jesus saves from what? Right, what's, the, what's the problem that we need to be saved from? And what are we saved for? What's the, what's the end result supposed to look like? What is the, what's the goal here? What does this salvation actually look like? And then saved by who specifically? Right, I get it's by someone named Jesus, but who is that? How does he save us? And in Luke chapter 3, a man named John the Baptist comes on the scene with that exact same message, Jesus saves. And thankfully, all of those follow-up questions that we have, John has answers. He brings this salvation into much-needed clarity. If you remember, we were first introduced to John back in chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, where his miraculous birth was announced that he would be the, the forerunner who would prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. The last we heard of John was in Luke 180, where after his birth, he grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And in our passage this morning, after 30 years of obscurity, the day of his public appearance has finally arrived. So let's read Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. These are the very words of the living God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. <laughs> every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. 
And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. (laughs) For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him for help as we begin. (laughs) Father, we do need your help. We need you to open up this word to us. Lord, just as we heard from Nehemiah 8 earlier that we've assembled as, as one people here before your open book. Help us to be attentive to the words that your spirit has breathed out for us. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word, wonderful things about our Lord Jesus. And please don't let us leave here unchanged. Use your word to transform us for the glory of your great name. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, whether you've been a Christian for decades or whether you're skeptically curious about the Christian faith, those questions we mentioned earlier are are questions that we need answered. Who are we saved by? What are we saved from? What are we saved for? And we can summarize really John's message his ministry like this. He answers all of our questions. We are saved by God's grace, from God's wrath, for God's glory. His message was simple, it was clear, and it was eternally significant. We are saved by God, from God, for God. So John begins by showing us that we are saved by God's grace. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to imagine standing there on the banks of the Jordan River. You've heard that there's a new prophet out in the wilderness, and so you've gone out to see him for yourself. You're overworked and overtaxed, so when you finally get a day off, you went to hear the first prophet to speak after over 400 years of prophetic silence. And you can't wait to hear him spit fire against the Romans. 
I mean, at this point in time, Tiberius, he's the, the emperor over practically the entire known world. He is repulsively vile in his private life, and he is infamously cruel in his public life. <laughs> he has Pontius Pilate keeping the, the land of promise, the, the land of God's people, under the thumb of Roman rule. And Pilate has his puppet leaders in place, men like Herod and Philip, to help keep the peace, or Rome's view of peace. Now there's the high priests like Annas and Caiaphas who are supposed to be on the side of the people. But they're corrupt and crooked and compromised. Now you would have no way of knowing, but many of these men over the next few years would be directly responsible for the execution of both John the Baptist and the Messiah he's announcing. So against this dark backdrop... What do you want to hear in the prophet's sermon? Don't you want to hear John speak about a leader who will come and bring peace and prosperity to the land of God's people? Aren't you longing for a liberation movement to break out and free Jerusalem once and for all? Don't you want John to announce a Messiah who will lead us in battle to throw off the chains of our Roman oppressors? But when you get to the river, John doesn't say any of those things. In fact, he's calling everyone in this Jewish crowd to repent for their sins. He's not calling Rome to repent, but Israel. Not God's enemies, but God's people. And just then, the, the, the wild preacher looks at you. And he calls you to come down in front of this massive crowd, to step into the river and to be washed with water to symbolize you need to be washed. You need to be forgiven. This is scandalous. It's unheard of because the Jews have required Gentiles to wash themselves before converting to Judaism. But he wants us to be washed, us Jews. He seriously thinks that we're the problem. No one was expecting this kind of message. John the Baptist was a controversial figure because he confronts us with this uncomfortable truth that no matter how hard you work, or how well you behave, or how thoroughly you fill out your religious resume. No one can earn God's favor. We need his forgiveness to be given to us as a gift, a free gift. In other words, we don't deserve anything from God, so we need him to give us what we don't deserve. Every single one of us is in desperate need for God's grace. But we don't like to admit just how needy we really are, do we? And we definitely don't like to admit that of all the problems in our lives, we are our own worst problem. 
So we tend to shift the blame. We think that our main problems are financial or relational or medical or political or cultural, all things outside of ourselves. But John identifies our deepest and most fundamental problem as internal, the problem of our own personal sin. We have all broken God's law. We have failed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. But still, we we tend to make excuses, don't we? We don't want to admit just how needy we really are. We want to believe that we're generally good people who just occasionally make mistakes. But John, he, he just looks at us eye to eye and calls us a brood of vipers. Now that's a metaphor, but it's not very flattering. <laughs> doesn't paint a pretty picture. John, he just doesn't buy any of our excuses. He sees through all of our alibis. He just stands there in the shallows of the river, calling us to stop hiding, to to stop pretending, to to stop living in denial, and, and to step into the waters of honesty and confession and repentance. And John, he, he isn't just a bearer of bad news. He's a herald of good news. So thankfully in verses 4 through 6, Luke he, he gives us words of hope from Isaiah chapter 40. He, he frames John's ministry within Isaiah. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, <coughs> prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now Luke, by by quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, he's hinting at a massively important truth. You see, Isaiah, he was a prophet of, of grace and his prophecy is split in half. The first 39 chapters just paint a bleak picture of humanity's utter helplessness to save ourselves. But starting in chapter 40 and continuing throughout the rest of the book, Isaiah paints a beautiful picture, a picture that's actually summarized in his own name. Isaiah, Yahweh saves. The Lord is salvation. So on our own, we are helpless and hopeless. So out of the riches of his grace and generosity, he is going to come himself. The Lord will come himself to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. John, he's just a voice in the wilderness. But he's clearing the path, he's making the way straight so that the Lord can come to rescue us and all flesh, all humanity will see the salvation of God. One of the mottos of the Protestant Reformation was extra nos. Everyone say extra nos. You do a little better than that. Extra nos. 
All right, you're speaking very good Latin. Good job. But that's just a Latin phrase, and it simply means outside ourselves. Outside ourselves, which means salvation doesn't come from within us. It's not based on our accomplishments or our achievements. No, salvation comes from the outside. It's rooted in God himself, in who he is and what he's done for us. And we see just a a vivid picture of this in John's baptism. It's the same picture we see in Christian baptism that we practice. Earlier I mentioned that Jews would require Gentiles to be washed, be ritually baptized before converting to Judaism. But what's interesting is, in that process, you would baptize yourself. You would dunk yourself under the water. It was a self-baptism. And John's baptism was different. Because he was the Baptist, the baptizer. You had to receive baptism. You couldn't wash yourself. It was just a picture that we are saved from beginning to end by grace and by grace alone. So do you realize just how much you really need the grace of God? Can you admit that you're a sinner in desperate need for a Savior? Will you give up trying to impress God with your good behavior and just fall into his arms, relying on his compassion and his mercy? And dear believers, do you realize that you never outgrow your need for God's grace? Never. We need God's grace every day, every hour, every minute. We need grace like we need the breath in our lungs. And it's easy to think, well, yes, I know I've been saved, but now I just need to wash myself. I need to clean myself up. When we're called to receive, receive the washing of God's grace and rest in that. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So we're saved by God's grace and we're saved from God's wrath as we see in verses 7 through 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Over the last few weeks, we have all seen how Hurricane Ian made landfall on the west coast of Florida. It was a Category 4 hurricane. Winds of over 150 miles an hour, just bringing destruction, devastation. So thankful for Mark bringing a team to go and help. But... 
throughout the scriptures, there's a consistent warning that there is a storm coming. The storm of God's wrath. And this is a storm that makes Hurricane Ian look like a light spring shower. John the Baptist, he is not politically correct. He's not soft around the edges. He's bold and blunt and direct. What are we saved from, John? He answers plainly. We're saved from the wrath of God. I know that this it isn't a popular topic of discussion. The idea of a God who would ever get angry, a God who takes vengeance, a God of wrath, it's seen as barbaric and primitive and uncivilized. The truth about hell and judgment, it's seen as outdated and just completely irrelevant. And even as as Christians, we we can struggle and wrestle with the idea of the wrath of God. So let's slow down. And really think this through. In the early 1900s, there was a newspaper in a London, an article in a London newspaper, and it asked this question What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And they got all kinds of responses, naming all kinds of problems with the world, but G.K. Chesterton wrote in. Very short response. He said, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. Yes, the world is broken, and in so many ways we are broken, but we have to admit that we've also done some of the breaking. Our God is a God of perfect justice. And one day he will set all things right in this world. But if we're part of the problem in this world, that's not good news for us. We all intrinsically and instinctively want God to destroy the evil out there in the world. But we don't want God to destroy the evil in here. In our own hearts, in our own lives. But is that true? Evil? Is there actually evil in our hearts? Well, consider this. We we haven't just sinned against one another, though we have. We've actually sinned against our Creator. As R.C. Sproul used to put it, sin is cosmic treason. And when you commit cosmic treason against an infinite and eternal God, justice requires an infinite and eternal reckoning. So if God applies his perfect justice to the evil of this world, he will have to apply his perfect justice to us. And that's uncomfortable. That's unsettling, isn't it? But it's actually a kindness of God to unsettle us, to disturb us, to snap us out of our self-induced stupor. So for a moment, I, I want you to lower your defenses 
and allow John the Baptist to warn you of the reality that there really is a day of judgment coming. There really is wrath to come. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. That is just one more swing and the tree is coming down. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John doesn't mince words. The wrath of God is coming. And it's not just John. It's the whole of Scripture. Throughout the Bible, there are over 600 references to the wrath of God. Here's just a few. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Acts 17 and verse 31. So the resurrection of Jesus makes him both savior and judge. And so we are warned in Romans 2, 5, because of your hard and impenitent hearts or because of your hard and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And what will that look like? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It really is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So naturally, we want to find a way to wiggle out. We want to find an exception that makes this warning apply to others and not to us. But John won't allow it. He speaks to us with surgical precision and says, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The Jews standing there on the, on the bank of the river could have thought, this message of the wrath to come, it certainly doesn't apply to us. We're part of Abraham's family. We're the people of God. We follow the, the rules and the instructions and the law. But John says, don't begin to say that. Don't even go there. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church or if you've been baptized or if you know all the Bible stories or if you've lived your whole life in the buckle of the Bible belt. It doesn't matter if you, you volunteer and give to charity or if you live an outwardly moral life. The Bible's message is this, all have sinned. God's wrath is coming against fallen humanity. There is no exceptions list. So we just can't blunt the serrated edge of God's word. We can't. Whenever a hurricane is coming, good leadership will prepare an evacuation plan a way of escape, a plan to bring their people safely through. 
And yes, our God is a God of holy wrath. And at the exact same time, he is a God of steadfast love. And in his love, he has provided a way of escape. An evacuation plan. Remember, John is preaching within the context of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 53 and verse 5, we hear these beautiful words about the Messiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. So Jesus looked down on us. Rebels against God. Destined for wrath. He looked down on us and said, I'll become one of them. I'll identify with them. I'll trade places with them. I'll swap records with them. I'll go to the cross and count their sin as my own. I'll take the blame for their wrongdoing. I'll bear the punishment that their lawbreaking deserved. I'll pay their sin debt in full. I'll drink the cup of judgment that they've personally filled up. I'll suffer the full fury of the storm of God's wrath so they'll never have to. I will literally go through hell on earth so they can experience an eternity of joy with me. And on top of that, I'll give them everything. I'll lavish the riches of my grace upon them. I'll cover them in my spotless, perfect robe of righteousness. I let my perfect law-keeping life count for them. I'll forgive every sin, past, present, and future, fully, freely, and forever. I'll unite them to myself so that all that is mine can be theirs and I'll calm the storm of God's wrath so that I can lead them to lie down beside the still waters of my grace. The bad news really is bad, but the good news is so good. It's so good. And in Jesus, we see two Seemingly paradoxical truths about God come together in perfect harmony. In, in Exodus 34, 6, we hear that God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. And yet in Psalm 2, verse 12, it says that his wrath is quickly kindled. So which is it? Is he slow to anger or is he quick to wrath? And the Bible's answer is, yes. <laughs> Both. God is slow to anger. He is so patient, so long-suffering. He gives us so much time to evacuate before the storm arrives. And throughout the Old Testament, there's this interesting phrase that's used over and over again, specifically about Israel, and they provoked the Lord to anger. You see, God does get angry, but that's not his initial disposition toward us. He gets angry and responds with wrath when provoked by our sin. 
And he is patient, but eventually his patience will run out. And the tempest of his justice will make landfall on this earth in complete and devastating fury. He is slow to anger. And his wrath is quickly kindled. So here is John's message to each one of us. The Lord is patient. The day of his judgment is yet to arrive. And if you try to ride out the coming storm of God's wrath, if you think you can make it through on your own, there is no hope for survival. Zero. None. So John tells us, flee the wrath to come. He says, if you evacuate, if you flee, there is hope. Because when you flee from the wrath to come, you flee to the cross of Jesus. His cross is the only refuge from the storm, the only shelter from God's judgment. So flee the wrath to come and take refuge in the love of Jesus. For those of us who are already in the shelter of his cross, for those of us who have been rescued by Jesus, we have a mission. We have a mission. This world, this fallen world, is on a collision course with a holy and righteous God. We should pick up John's mantle and call others to flee the wrath to come. We should let the world know that there's more than enough room for them in the shelter of the cross. We should do all that we can to announce to anyone and to everyone the God-ordained evacuation plan. Namely, that we are saved by God's grace, from God's wrath, for God's glory. So let's move on to John's grand finale. We are saved for God's glory. So in verse 10, the crowds respond. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? They're saying, we believe you, John. So what now? We believe your message. So what should our life look like as a result? What should we do? That's an important question because we've seen that this salvation that Jesus provides, it changes our eternal destiny. But does it have any impact on our day-to-day lived reality here on earth? We've been rescued from the coming storm of God's wrath, but how do we rebuild our lives in the wreckage of sin here and now? What then shall we do? Well, I love John's answer. He answers with just such practical simplicity. He says, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. 
So in response to John's preaching, people want to know what to do, and he tells them. All right, John's response actually shows us what he meant earlier when he said to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This is what that looks like. And biblically speaking, repentance, it's a, it's a change in our hearts that leads to a change in the direction of our lives. It's a heart transformation that produces life transformation. So before Christ, the law condemned us in our sin. But after we've been redeemed by Christ, the law of God becomes our delight. As we sang earlier, in Rock of Ages, he says, be for sin a double cure. That's good news. Not a single cure, a double cure. Save from wrath, we've already heard that, and make me pure. So once we've been saved from the wrath of God, now Jesus begins the lifelong process of purifying us and enriching us and beautifying our lives for the glory of God. And he gets so specific. He gives the specific details about what this transformation, what these repentant fruits can look like. He tells tax collectors what repentance can look like in their lives. He tells soldiers what it can look like specifically for them. And what does it look like? What does a life lived for the glory of God actually look like on the ground? It looks like sharing with those in need. Not using other people for our own selfish gain. Not abusing our power and authority over others and being content with what we have. In other words, repentance doesn't look flashy. It doesn't look super extra hyper spiritual. It actually looks pretty normal, pretty ordinary. It looks like a life of loving and serving our neighbors in simple and practical and tangible ways. In his commentary on Luke's gospel, Dale Ralph Davis, he, he tells the story of a missionary in Ethiopia. And in the village where this missionary was at, there was a man, uh, a farmer. He had a farm. He had a family. But his field was unworked and overgrown. His fair... His family just could, could, could barely survive because this man was using all of his money on alcohol. His life was spiraling out of control. He didn't know Christ, and then he heard the gospel. He heard the gospel, and his life was changed. He was transformed. And you know what that transformation looked like for him? It looked like plowing a field rolling up his sleeves and getting his hands dirty to provide for his family. Not flashy, ordinary. And Davis, he follows up the story with these words. Repentance is not seen in your doing some extraordinary feat, but in your living ordinary life in a transformed way. Not extraordinary, but living life, ordinary life in a transformed way. These tax collectors, they were still tax collectors. 
The soldiers were still soldiers. What they were doing didn't change, but why they did it changed and how they did it changed. Their motivations were reshaped and realigned and reoriented at a deep level. Before Jesus, they were using their positions of power to serve themselves, but now they can use their positions to serve Jesus and to serve others. The gospel transformed their ordinary lives. It's the same for us. We're just regular people. Students and workers, parents and singles, little kids and empty nesters. We're just regular people. But we're regular people who have been redeemed by Jesus. And be honest, do you ever get discouraged because you feel like you haven't done great things for God? You haven't done something big for him. Do you ever feel the pressure that your life isn't really radical, isn't really sold out for Jesus? If so, let this passage encourage your heart. The Lord is actually pleased When we do small things, normal things, mundane things out of love for him. He is the God of greatness and he is the God of the mundane. Jesus delights, he takes delight in even our stumbling baby steps of obedience. God loves to use our our simple and ordinary lives for his glory. So let's take some time to think about just our upcoming week, right? And let's imagine together what an average day might look like as people saved for the glory of God. Let's personalize the question of verse 10, what then shall we do? So when you show up to the office tomorrow morning and your inbox is filled with 50 emails, What might it look like to to leverage your life to serve Jesus and to serve others? Or when you get on the job site and the subcontractors don't show up, how will you respond if your life is centered on God's plans and purposes, not your own? When you're changing yet another dirty diaper... What does it look like to rejoice in all circumstances? When you're stuck in traffic on Alcoa Highway. These are just theoretical, right? (laughs) When you're stuck in traffic, how can you, even in that moment, be transformed by the renewal of your mind? When you sit down to study for your midterm exam, what does it look like to do everything even school assignments for the glory of God. Or when you go yet another year and there's still no increase in your salary, what does it look like to be content and satisfied in your Savior? Christian, your ordinary life has been redeemed by Jesus so he can transform it into a life lived for his glory. 
Repentance isn't seen in doing some extraordinary feat, but in living ordinary life in a transformed way for the glory of God. Well, I don't know about you, but personally, I'm thankful for John the Baptist. Because he brings a lot of clarity to that sign on the side of the road saying, Jesus saves. Christian, you have been saved. You've been saved by God's grace. You've been saved from God's wrath and you've been saved for God's glory. You're saved by God, from God, for God. So let's close with these words that served as our call to worship this morning. They're just so good, so sweet. Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, that is the day when Jesus comes. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have saved us. I thank you that we're saved by your grace. That where sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. We thank you that you give more grace. We need it. We thank you that we've been saved from God's wrath. Help us not to minimize that in our minds, but to grow in our thankfulness for Christ that he bore that wrath on our behalf on his cross. We thank you. And we thank you that we've been saved for your glory. Oh, Lord, please continue the process of transforming our ordinary lives to be lived for your glory. Help us to be changed by the power of your word, the power of your gospel, and the power of your spirit. So be glorified in our lives and in our worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.